Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. <laughs> hey, Tracy. Yeah. Uh, Canada is spending 2017 celebrating its 150th birthday. I am aware of this. <laughs> We know because lots of people have mentioned it to us and requested that we do some sort of Canadian history. Um, and one particular topic has come up over and over and over. So many times. Uh, specifically, it was requested by Alexander, Jamie, Susan, Nicole, Drina, Stasha, and Tyler. If you requested it and I missed you, I apologize. Uh, but today, this topic is considered by some but not all historians to be the father of Manitoba. And that disparity in these some but not all is, uh, in how he's viewed is something that's really been a part of his legacy pretty much from the beginning of his life as a prominent figure in Manitoba and Canadian history. And we are talking today about Louis Riel. Before we get into Louis Riel's story, we need to back up a little bit and set some context about the Métis people. The origin of the earliest Métis is traced back to the 1600s in eastern Canada. Métis is a French word that translates roughly to mixed blood or hybrid. As European fishermen took wives from the local indigenous population, their children became the first generation of Métis. Yeah, there are a number of different translations that you will see of Métis from very sort of mild ones, like, oh, it means combined, to some fairly disparaging type translations. Uh, just if you go looking, know <laughs> that that will happen. And as the fur trade led French-Canadian trappers and traders to move west, they too often took wives from the indigenous population, marrying primarily Cree, Ojibwa, or Salto women, and this was the result to some degree of an eagerness on the part of the people that lived there to foster positive relationships with these Europeans that were moving in. So they kind of offered them wives who would be able to care for them uh, and serve in, in roles as wives, but also that would translate and bridge any cultural confusion between the Europeans and these indigenous peoples. The children of these negotiated marriages became the foundation of the Western Métis Nation, which was centered in the Red River region of what's now Manitoba. This became a uniquely blended culture that incorporated both French, Catholic, and Native beliefs and traditions. Yeah, and there was even like a language that developed that is unique, uh, which I don't get into in this episode, but it's quite fascinating. And the Métis also had a vast knowledge of both European and native to Canada cultures. And so they could easily work with both indigenous and European groups. And many, as a consequence, became employees of the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company, both of which were the large fur trade enterprises operating in the Canadian areas at the time. There is some irony there, because initially the Hudson's Bay Company actually discouraged these types of mixed marriages but they soon realized there were some benefits to having employees with wide-ranging skill sets that really helped the fur trade grow. Yeah, I mean, among other things, they were able to survive in climates that uh, people that came here straight from Europe weren't always prepared to deal with. And then they could teach other people, and they ended up being just such a, a knowledge base for these companies. Hudson's Bay Company also owned this massive tract of Canada known as Rupert's Land. And this land had been given to the company by King Charles II. And it was named for Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who held governorship over the land when it was first granted in 1670. 
By the early 1800s, there was an influx of European immigrants into the Red River Valley area, and those immigrants were given land assignments from the Hudson's Bay Company. But this was done completely ignoring the fact that the Métis Nation people were already living there. Additionally, the Northwest Company had trade routes through the land, which were disregarded in this process. As a result, the Northwest Company was put in a position where they had no real option but to merge with the Hudson's Bay Company, and the combination of the two of them meant that a lot of land in Canada was owned by one fur trading company. Yeah, if you look at maps that overlay, like, here's Canada, here's what was owned by the Hudson's Bay Company at this time. It's like most of Canada, uh, which is interesting that it would all be owned by a corporate venture. So the Red River Colony was founded over the years of 1811 and 1812 by a Scottish immigrant, Thomas Douglas, 5th Earl of Selkirk, who was granted a 116,000 square mile, that's about a 300,000 square kilometer, land parcel by the Hudson's Bay Company. And though its initial years as a settlement were kind of shaky due to fighting caused by the rivalry between the then-separate Hudson's Bay Company and the North West Company. Uh, once the two for 1821, things really started to stabilize. And in 1836, the Hudson's Bay Company purchased the colony back from the Selkirk estate. Louis David Riel was born in St. Boniface in the Red River Colony on October 23rd of 1844. His father was a well-respected member of the Métis community and his mother was French-Canadian. Louis was their first child and they eventually had 10 more. At the age of 14, Riel traveled to Montreal to be trained and educated for the priesthood. And when he was 13, he had actually been handpicked by the clergy in Red River as a potential priest and to go have this education. And as a consequence, his education was financed entirely through a scholarship. But he never completed his training and he was never ordained. If he had been, he would have been Canada's first Métis priest. And while he was excelling in seminary, he had also met a young woman, Marie-Julie Garneau, and the two of them fell in love and became engaged. Riel, however, was not really welcomed by her family. They were French-Canadian, and they did not really have an interest in marrying their daughter off to a Métis man. After that, he quit his religious studies. During that tumult of his failed romance, Riel's father died in 1864, which was also a huge blow and part of why he was sort of willing to make this big sea change and leave the seminary. And that also left his mother and the rest of the family without a provider. And Louis worked first for a time as a law clerk, uh, sending money back to the family, but eventually he returned to St. Boniface in 1868. In 1869, there was a deal in motion to annex parts of the Red River Settlement to the Dominion of Canada in a sale that would really benefit the Hudson's Bay Company. But the Métis people who lived in the area to be annexed had no say in the matter, and there were approximately 9,000 of those people. The whole deal was being handled by the Fur Company, and the Canadian government appointed a lieutenant governor to oversee the survey work that would reevaluate all this land for future use. Yeah, they were plodding right along, kind of ignoring the fact that there were a whole lot of people that already called that place home. And the Métis were concerned, additionally, that there would be a massive influx of Anglo-Protestant immigrants crowding out the community that had been building up the Red River settlement for decades. There had already been a steadily growing tension among the different cultures and religions in the region, and the potential arrival of additional immigrants from Ontario was seen as a real danger to the future of the Métis way of life. 
This conflict led to the founding of the Métis National Committee, which had a mission to defend Métis culture and to have a political voice. Louis Riel, whose family was prominent among the Métis, was elected secretary of the Métis National Committee and eventually became its president. In his role and working, he was able to stop the survey. It was actually halted on October 11th of 1869. But that was far from the end of Riel's involvement in working against the Canadian government on behalf of the Métis. In November, the Métis launched a more aggressive plan. First, the committee set up a roadblock that would keep William McDougall, the Canadian government's appointed lieutenant governor, from entering the Red River settlement. In addition to preventing McDougall's visit, the committee also made a raid on one of the Hudson's Bay Company posts, Upper Fort Gary, and took over that post. Then they set up their own government over the Red River Settlement. And once they had established their authority, the Métis National Committee invited delegates, both French and English speakers, from the Red River Settlement to come to Upper Fort Gary so they could all discuss the situation and what they were all willing to accept as terms to allow the lieutenant governor into the Red River Settlement. This whole sequence of events became known as the Red River Rebellion. And in the in early December, the Métis National Committee formed a provisional government. At this point, John Bruce was still president of the group and thus of the provisional government, and Louis Riel was its secretary. Eventually, Bruce stepped down due to illness, and Riel assumed the leadership role of president. And coming up next, we're going to talk about how the issues with the Red River Settlement and the Canadian government played out. But first, we're going to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors. Bruce and Riel together issued the Declaration of the People of Rupert's Land and the Northwest on December 8th. This document stated plainly that the Canadian government did not have any authority in the region and offered the opportunity for Canada to negotiate with the Métis provisional government to reach some sort of settlement. In response to this declaration, the Canadian government sent three men, Hudson's Bay Company Rep. Donald Smith, Colonel Charles de Salaberry and Reverend Jean-Baptiste Thibault to negotiate. Initial efforts on the part of Canada's trio were focused on setting up a structure for the discussions where all of the stakeholders could be involved. It was decided that 40 representatives of the settlement, half English speakers, half French speakers, would meet in a convention with the Canadian government's negotiators to see if an agreement could be struck so the lands under the leadership of the Métis National Committee could join with Canada. In January 1870, the 40 men assembled as delegates made a list of conditions that had to be met for them to join the Confederation of Canada. Over the course of the next two months, the convention formed into a more structured entity with a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch, and it took the name Provisional Government of Assiniboine. Three delegates were selected from this new provisional government to be sent to Ottawa. And there, they negotiated with co-premier Georges-Étienne Cartier to integrate the territory, including and surrounding Red River, into the Confederation. There was not universal support for the efforts of the Métis National Committee and the provisional government they established, though. A group of armed Canadians gathered in force and made their way to Red River, and the Métis quickly took them into custody and confined them at Upper Fort Garry. One of the men who was captured by the Métis was Thomas Scott. Scott was a member of the Orange Order, which was a pro-Protestant group in Canada that viewed French Canadians and Catholics as inferior. For his involvement in the attempted attack on Red River, 
Scott was court-martialed by the Métis leadership and sentenced to death. He was executed by firing squad on March 4th, 1870, and as a consequence, Louis Riel was despised by many Protestants after that. But this incident did not halt the negotiations that were taking place in Ottawa. Yeah, and it was actually an associate of Louis Riel that that made that decision to have Scott executed. But because Riel was kind of the leader of this rebellion at this point, he was blamed. And two months after Scott was executed, the Manitoba Act, which made the province of Manitoba a part of the Confederation, was sanctioned on May 12, 1870. And according to the terms of the Manitoba Act, the province would be bilingual and 1.4 million acres, that's uh, about 566,000 hectares of land, uh, was to be reserved for the children of the province's Métis residents. One of the first things that happened after the Manitoba Act was that the Canadian government sent military troops into Red River. This was, according to then-Lieutenant Governor A.G. Archibald, intended as a show of support for him from the federal government and was peaceful. But no such move had been in any way discussed when the Manitoba Act was being hashed out. And so no one had told the provisional government that it was going to happen, let alone ask them if they would be okay with it. Yes, it's like, you're going to be part of Canada. We are sending in the military. Uh, and it became really clear as well that Louis Riel should be very concerned about this military force. There was still a great deal of anger over Thomas Scott's execution, and it was discovered that Riel was very much in danger of being lynched by federal troops. There was a plan to do so. So he fled to the United States. Riel didn't stay away for long, though. He returned to Red River a year later in May 1871, but he kept a very low profile, and with good reason, he was still very controversial. In Ontario, to the east of of Manitoba, which was still predominantly Protestant, he was labeled as a murderer responsible for Thomas Scott's death, and there was a reward offered for his arrest. But Quebec, which is on the eastern side of Ontario, viewed him as a, in a more heroic light because of his efforts to make sure French language and the Catholic faith were part of Manitoba's culture. This clash of opinions about Riel concerned Canadian Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald. And fearing that Riel's presence in Canada would lead to civil unrest, he actually offered Riel some money. Uh, he paid him to go back to the United States and live in exile. And Riel took that deal in part because he was still taking care of his mother and siblings and he needed the money. But even gone from Canada, Riel was a significant figure in Manitoba's culture and politics. After supporters urged him to enter federal politics, he won a parliamentary seat in 1873 and then again in 1874. After his re-election in 1874, he traveled to Ottawa on March 30th of that year, went into the parliament building to swear his allegiance and sign the House of Commons member register, and then he had to leave. A motion had been introduced by an Orange Order member from the House of Ontario that expelled him. The following year, a conditional amnesty was offered to Riel by the Canadian government on the stipulation that he must accept five years of banishment. And Riel agreed to these terms. And this was also tied into some deals that were going on with other people that had been involved in the Red River Rebellion. And this would seem like a really positive moment in his life. Uh, but unfortunately, the stresses of his leadership role in Manitoba and the ongoing blame leveled at him for Scott's death really took a toll, and he ended up suffering a nervous breakdown. This was after a series of episodes that make it apparent that Riel was struggling with mental exhaustion. 
He'd been staying with an uncle, John Lee, near Montreal, when his public outbursts and, and manic episodes became too much for the Lee household to manage. He was taken first to an asylum in Montreal where he was admitted under the name uh, Louis R. David on March 6th of 1876. There was concern, however, that Riel would be discovered in the hospital, first clearly against the terms of his amnesty, but more importantly at a time when he was vulnerable and could be victimized by political enemies if they realized that he was there. And the staff at the hospital who knew who he was consulted with the friends and family who had admitted him, and it was decided after two months in the Montreal Asylum that he should be moved to another facility, the Beauport Asylum outside Quebec City. In the period leading up to his hospitalization and while he was convalescing, Riel, who had always been religious, became obsessed with matters of spirituality. He wrote extensive notes on religion. He also became convinced that he had been chosen by God to serve as a leader or a prophet. Uh, yeah, that's that's worded in various different ways when you read about him. Uh, some people think that he kind of saw himself as a messiah of the Métis people, he definitely did think God had chosen him to enact huge change. So after a year and a half of rest and treatment, Riel was discharged from the Beauport Asylum, and his doctor advised Riel to find a way to live a quiet, peaceful life. And initially, Riel traveled to Keysville, New York, in search of work, and then eventually made his way to the American Midwest. He joined some of the Métis who had moved to the United States in the Montana Territory. And he applied to be an American citizen, married a Métis woman named Marguerite Monet de Bellhumeur, and settled down in Montana, where the couple had three children. He started a new career as a school teacher at St. Peter's Mission, which sat on a tributary of the Missouri River known as the Sun River. So at this point, it seems like Riel had found that quiet life that he was prescribed by his doctor, but it wasn't long before he became embroiled in another conflict. And we're going to talk about that after we first have a quick word from one of our fantastic sponsors. So during that time that Riel was in Montana, there were still ongoing issues between the Métis and the Canadian government. For one, the Métis were suffering economically because the fur trade and buffalo hunting industries that had employed many Métis people were declining. And some, like the Métis that Riel had connected with in Montana, had decided to move on to other places, and that also included Saskatchewan. One of the major Métis settlements in Saskatchewan was Batouche. There was no political representation for the Métis in the territorial government, even though they made up a majority of the population there. There had been efforts in the 1870s to establish Métis members of the Territorial Council, but they had represented the Métis of Manitoba, not those in in Saskatchewan. When the Métis of Saskatchewan did finally get a representative in government, the requests that were made by that position never got any attention. For one, there had been a request to survey the land along the South Saskatchewan River so that it could be best used to suit the needs of the community. They had also petitioned to have formal titles to their lands established, fearing that without that, if Batouche experienced an influx of new settlers as Manitoba had, they could easily lose the land that they had been on for years. Even with support from the Roman Catholic Church working on their behalf in this matter, the Canadian government gave only the vaguest of responses, with no plans for action on any of the matters that had been raised. 
So by the 1880s, the Métis and the European settlers in the area all had problems with the federal government. And in addition to lack of clear titles, there had been a land devaluation because the Canadian Pacific Railway had been relocated to the southern prairie region, meaning Batouche was not on the line anymore. In June of 1884, the plight of the Métis was once again brought to Louis Riel. Because he had managed to negotiate with the Canadian government during the problems in Red River, it was believed that he could probably help with Saskatchewan's problems too. Gabriel Dumont, president of the Métis Council of Saint-Laurent, which had formed in Saskatchewan, visited Riel in Montana and asked him to help his people's cause. And Riel agreed, and he traveled to Batouche with his family. Once they arrived there, Riel and William Henry Jackson, who was Riel's secretary as well as the secretary of the local farmers union, put together a petition that listed all of the grievances of the people in Batouche and sent it to Ottawa on December 16th. This was after more than three dozen petitions had been sent already, but the federal government replied to the one drafted by Riel and Jackson, promising that an investigative commission would be appointed. And this response really did not sit well with the Métis in Batouche, who had heard similar assurances before and who had frankly grown tired of waiting. So on March 5th of 1885, they held a meeting to discuss an armed effort to force the government's hand. Riel suggested a few days later that what they should do is set up a provisional government for Saskatchewan. Riel's motion was not enacted. Instead, the group drafted a Revolutionary Bill of Rights, was a document that consisted of 10 demands, and included in the demands was a stipulation that a government office be established that was closer to them, so they didn't have to take up land disputes with far with faraway Ottawa, and that they had the right to own their farms. In response to the Revolutionary Bill of Rights, the federal government sent in a military force consisting of 500 men. The Métis, hearing about this before those men had arrived, took possession of the Batouche Church and there established a provisional government, as Riel had suggested, and they did that on March 18, 1885. Louis Riel was the leader. The new government also seized the Hudson's Bay Company's Fort Carlton post. And leading up to the taking of Fort Carlton, Riel and five dozen men had also looted several stores for supplies, and Riel was heard proclaiming that Rome has fallen. He also proclaimed that Bishop Ignace Bourget was the new pope. And these odd proclamations were red flags that there was something amiss in Riel's mental state. But he was so charismatic and so invested in the Métis cause that the men with him remained loyal and continued to follow his lead. For the next several months, which came to be known as the Northwest Resistance or the Northwest Rebellion, the Métis and their Aboriginal allies fought the Canadian government. In the early weeks, the Métis were able to score some victories. At the first Battle of the Rebellion, the Battle of Duck Lake, 300 Métis defeated 100 Canadian men. But as Canada sent in more troops, the Canadian militia wound up dominating the fight. On May 15th of 1885, Louis Riel surrendered to Canadian authorities. He was charged with high treason and was taken to Regina, Saskatchewan, and his trial there began on July 20th. And in total, there were 84 trials held for participants in the rebellion. But Riel, because of his leadership in the conflict, was the only person tried for high treason. His trial was almost as much of a conflict between Riel and his legal counsel as it was between Riel and the Canadian government. Riel's lawyers wanted to use an insanity defense, 
and use his year and a half in asylums in Quebec is evidence of this. And there was some indication, as we just mentioned, that he was not entirely in a clear state of mind when this rebellion started. Riel hated this idea. He felt that if they claimed insanity, it was an insult to everything the Métis had fought for and that it discredited both the 1870 Manitoba uh, actions at the Red River Colony and the recent uprising in Saskatchewan. His plan was to argue self-defense. He felt that it was clear that the Métis needed to make the moves that they had for self-preservation. But the trick was that his lawyers did not actually answer to him. They were paid for by wealthy friends of his and by uh, people that he was related to, uh, because Riel simply could not have afforded that counsel on his own. And the lawyer's employers wanted Riel, their friend, to go free or at least achieve the minimum possible punishment. As the trial neared its end, Riel made a speech. Always having been skilled and passionate as an orator, he left no one in the courtroom in any doubt that he was in full command of his faculties, leaving his counsel's work at at claiming uh, his insanity essentially in the trash. And in doing so, he sacrificed himself for the Métis cause, because while he had convinced the people present that he had led the Métis in doing what they did with just cause, he was also basically admitting to the treason that he was charged with. On August 1st of 1885, the verdict was handed down. He was found guilty, but the jury, composed of six men, all of whom were Protestant and who were English speakers, recommended mercy in Riel's sentencing. Allegedly, the foreman cried as he read the verdict. The judge, Hugh Richardson, sentenced Louis Riel to death. This is sometimes framed as though the judge disregarded the jury's plea for leniency, but at the time, a guilty verdict in a high treason case in Canada, meant a mandatory death penalty. There were two appeals to higher courts, but both of those were dismissed. Riel was examined by three different doctors, each of whom gave their opinions on the state of his mental health. And one actually felt that he could probably be diagnosed as insane, but the other two did not. And so it got written up that the thing, he was just fine. He could, he was in his right mind, so to speak, and could, uh, accept the punishment that had been sentenced to him. And so his execution order stood. As he waited for his sentence to be carried out, Riel, who had written throughout his whole life, wrote poetry in his cell. And in one of these poems, he wrote, Let us have peaceful hearts, and the infinite will open. A little over three months after his trial for treason concluded, Louis Riel was executed by hanging on November 16th of 1885. Among his last words, he said, I have nothing but my heart, and I have given it long ago to my country. His body was transported to his birthplace, St. Boniface, where he was laid to rest in the cathedral cemetery. In his death, Riel became a martyr to the Métis and galvanized the French-Canadian population. His reputation in other parts of Canada, however, has been that he was a madman or a traitor, Though in the last half century, that view has softened pretty considerably. Pat Martin, new Democratic Party of Canada member of Parliament, has introduced several bills in Parliament to reverse Riel's conviction. In a 2014 interview with Canada's uh, cable public affairs channel, he said, quote, exonerating Louis Riel would go a long way to healing the relationship between the Crown and the Métis Nation. And other members of Parliament have also tried to exonerate Riel via legislative measures. Since 2007, Manitoba has celebrated an annual Louis Riel Day every February. 
The Métis Nation honors him with a day of remembrance each November 16th on the anniversary of his execution. And the Métis Nation's relationship with the Canadian government continues to evolve. Uh, Even in the last several months prior to when we were recording this, there have been a lot of um, legal measures as well as uh, kind of government gestures that have been made trying to repair some pretty uh, poor relations based on really bad treatment that that members of the Métis Nation have received in various different ways, uh, some related to a whole separate thing that could be another podcast, uh, related to very poor and really terrible treatment of children, as well as being denied access to certain hunting lands. There have been a lot of different things that have gone on that are all kind of uh, in in the course of hopefully having reparations made. So it's a, an ongoing discussion that will continue to to blossom and develop. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do, and it's I'm keeping it short since this episode is a little on the long side. Uh, it is a lovely, lovely thank you card from two of our listeners, uh, Amy and Mary Anna. And I won't read it because it's all very kind and really crazy, uh, but they didn't think they like podcasts, and now they listen to ours. And I love it, and I'm glad that they do, and I hope they find others that they love just as much because there is a world of podcasts out there that are fascinating, and there's so much good content that... Yeah. Everyone should, uh, everyone can pretty much find something that they like. They also sent us, um, My Little Pony stickers, which I love. Oh, nice. Uh, and they mentioned that, um, uh, the history of Wonder Woman might be a good topic, which might, it's been very, uh, prominent lately, Wonder Woman being discussed a lot. Well, but I think and, it's getting covered plenty. Yeah. And I also, the, the man who created her as a character is fascinating. Yeah. Too, but, uh, we definitely could not have either of those potential things be done before the movie. No, <laughs> no we would have to run right out right now, not yeah. sleep for the next two days, record, and then move around our schedule to make it happen. And that's not going to happen. We would need a time turner, I think. You don't like my idea of not sleeping for three days? No, I like oh. to sleep. Sleep is sleep, sleep soothes and consoles me. You know, I have a love-hate thing with sleep. So. I know. I know. <laughs> if you uh, can't sleep and would like to write to us, <laughs> you can do so at uh, HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as at Missed in History. That includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Tumblr, and Pinterest. And you can also uh, come and visit our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where we have uh, show notes and episodes going all the way back to way before Tracy and I were ever on the, the podcast, uh, as well as occasional other good you can go to our parent site, House Stuff Works, type in almost anything you're interested in in the search bar, and you will find a wealth of information. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 